Hey, 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 you guys. Big welcome back to the Dreamcast. Before we get into the normal intro, I want to do two disclaimers. First of all, a trigger warning. This episode is um, an amazing story from a survivor Uh, from a trafficking survivor. And so this may be right up your alley where you want to dig in and learn more about this crazy form of slavery that's happening in our world today. Or maybe you don't. So (laughs) I want to give you that warning now um, so you can decide how if you want to proceed. Secondly, I want to do a fact check. So in this episode, I mentioned that there were charges being brought forward for Prince Charles. And when I went back to Operation Underground Rescue to look for, you know, that information that I had found, um, I realized it was actually Prince Andrew. So I do not know my princes. Sorry. (laughs) I'll put the details below for Operation Underground Rescue and the details that I found about that. Needless to say, um, our guest today has a powerful story of survival of healing, and is bringing awareness to something that so many of us are just now learning more about. All right, without further ado, let's get this, let's get the party started. Hello, and welcome back to the Dreamcast. I am your host, Denise Walsh. I combine science, scripture, and stories that will inspire you to dive deep, break through your own personal glass ceiling, and design a life of your dreams. Do you feel like you've not been able to make headway in achieving your goals? Or did you start the year pumped, ready to move forward on making things happen and simply lost your way? Things don't need to just get better. They actually can be better. In Design Your Dream Life, I'll show you a proven pathway to take you from where you are now to a life filled with joy, wholeness, success, and fulfillment. I'll give you the keys to not just developing a plan, but taking massive empowered action to make your dreams a reality. Turn roadblocks into stepping stones and leverage the power of gratitude and forgiveness. Let's face it, taking massive empowered Powered action and making your dreams a reality isn't always easy. So I'll be there with you every step of the way. Visit dreamlifetoolkit.com to purchase your copy of Design Your Dream Life, obtain resources, and join our free community. Again, that's dreamlifetoolkit.com. Big, big welcome back to the Dreamcast. I am so honored to have our next guest share her story with us today. As you know, I truly believe that you can love all aspects of your life. Um, I believe you can have a thriving business and a thriving family and thriving health. And I really do know that God has put us on this earth for a reason. And when we tap into that spark, like we can truly thrive. In the midst of all of that, there's a lot of us that go through hard things and going through hard things doesn't mean that we are immune to having an awesome life. And our next guest is going to share with us some hard things that she has experienced in her past that honestly, most of us couldn't even imagine. But it's been so cool, and I'm so proud to have had the chance to work with her over the past few months to see how she is taking that hard thing and using it for good. Now, 
just a little backstory on how we met. Um, I often say that the how starts to show up when you're in alignment, right? Um, in my programs, I teach the dream life pathway, which is head, heart, feet, knowing what you want, really emotionally connecting to it, believing it's possible, which a lot of times in, means letting go and forgiveness and you know all the stuff that keeps our heart heavy and then taking steps towards it every day. And so I have been working on my own alignment over the past few years and finally launching programs and stepping up and out and doing things that I hadn't done over the past few years, you know, for a lot of various reasons. So needless to say, when I got a Facebook message from someone who was working in a safe house in Tennessee, I was like, oh, this is the how showing up. This is God saying, all right, here's a next step for you. And what he said was, would you be interested in working with those coming out of sex trafficking and maybe doing um, meal plans or workouts or habit building, that kind of thing? And I said, yes, the answer is always absolutely yes. And we talked on the phone and, you know, I shared with him, I'm not a nutritionist or personal trainer, but I work out a lot and I was a therapist and all these things. And these are the, what I, this is what I can help with. And so I have been working with Rachel over the past few months. I've got her book, Open Blind Eyes, and she is a survivor from sex trafficking who is going to share her powerful story with us today. So thank you so much, Rachel, for being on the Dreamcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I totally forgot the intro, which was, she's a wife, she's a mother, and... <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. But uh, we're, I'm so glad to talk with you today because I've been, um, it's been empowering to, to hear your story and get to know you over the past few months. And I will continually brag on your book, Open Blind Eyes. You guys, if you are, have not yet, go to Amazon right now and purchase it. It's a powerful story. But Rachel, you have experienced, you kind of were brought into trafficking at the age of nine. Let's start there. Tell us a bit about how it started for you. Yeah. Um, so the trafficking actually started in my grade school, which I think is really hard for people to even wrap their heads around. But it started with what I call the grooming process. And basically, I had just moved to a new school. I was going into the fourth grade. And it wasn't long into the school year that one of the teachers, and he was also the girls' basketball coach, kind of started to talk to me, show me interest. He would talk about basketball, which was my love. Um, he knew a lot about my family, even before him and I had ever talked that first time. He'd done his homework, basically, which I didn't pick up on, obviously, as a nine-year-old. But then he started to give me kind of special privileges. He would pull me out of class. He would let me spend time with him um, when I should have been doing work. I was, you know, sitting behind his desk talking about my dreams of basketball. And so I never picked up on the fact that this was a predator, that this was somebody wanting something from me. Um, the first time that he, quote unquote, accidentally touched me, you know, he ended up putting it back on me. You know, like, obviously, I didn't mean to do that. Why are you acting like a baby type thing? Um, and then it led to where he, we kind of came up with this plan to where I could go to his house. Um, and it was, I was meant to return a book was how we kind of played it off and how I asked my parents and he only lived a few houses down from me. So it all worked, uh, to his game plan, unfortunately. And, um, we started to kind of sneak around in a sense. And when I would go to his house, he then came up with an idea of taking pictures. And then pictures led to videos. And 
at first he made it seem like a fun game, but then, um, you know, when he wanted me to take my clothes off and different things, he even had a spin on that by saying, you know, this is the beautiful way that God made us. It's really not bad. Um, and it would just be showing everybody how beautiful I really am and, and things like that. And I bought into it. Um, but it wasn't long after that, that then it kind of hit me like, okay, like I was a preacher's kid. I was, you know, this man was very involved in the community. He was a teacher, a coach. He was an elder of a church. Um, all of these things kind of played part in, I started to feel shame. I started to feel the, the guilt. I mean, I knew right from wrong and I knew this was wrong. Um, but then he told me that, um, if I said anything to anybody, he would lose his wife, his kid, and his job. And going back to that grooming process, I cared for him at that point. And so I didn't want to hurt him. And when the point came where I was feeling the shame of, hold on, this is wrong, what we're doing, the only person I had to talk to was him. And then it was like, well, this was your idea. This wasn't my idea type thing. So I'm hearing a few things. Number one, he was a person of authority. And he was yeah. somebody who you are, we are told to trust our teachers. We are told to obey. We are told to follow directions. And so as a nine-year-old, you wouldn't have the, the you know, the werewolf to not do that because that's right. really what we're told to do. Right. And then I hear that he also used faith, mm -hmm. used God and anything that didn't feel right to you he then blamed you. Right. Which makes yep. it a very confusing place to live. Oh, the mind games were terrible. And I do think that each predator will hone in on whatever their victim's love is. And, you know, I loved basketball. I, I had a very strong love for God um, and I love scripture. So to be able to use both of those against me, it, it just played right into his hands. Now, in your book, you also talk about how sometimes at your house, there was another woman there. And I'm guessing that was not his wife or was his wife a part of it too? It was not at my house. It was his house. His house. Um, yeah. But it was um, a woman who was related to him and she would kind of, so when we moved into the videos and there were points where, um, you know, he videotaped he taught me what making love was. And again, use scripture that, you know, the two shall become one. And once we had made love, then that meant I belonged to him. Um, but this woman that was there, she helped get me ready. Like she put makeup on me, but then she also cleaned me up afterwards. And um, especially after that first time. And I remember her explaining to me, um, you know, if you have blood in your underwear, you need to make sure to throw your underwear away before, you, you know, your mom sees it. Just different things like that. But talk about confusing for a little girl. Yeah. I was going to say having a woman there yeah. as a part of it. Yeah. I would imagine you would be, I mean, having a girl there brings up the level of trust. Like, well, this mm -hmm. must be okay because if it wasn't, she would say something or she would do something right. or she would stop it. And so right. I can imagine that as a child, there's this, like, did you have that? Is this okay? Is this not okay? Or tell me a bit about when, how did you decide it wasn't okay when you have these people telling right. you it is? Well, and so you have the woman aspect, but then you also have the fact that there were many times people within our school would walk in and to his classroom and 
maybe I'd be sitting on his lap or one time a teacher caught me in the closet with him. Um, different things to where, to me, our relationship was obvious. And even if you asked my classmates, they would say, oh, yeah, we knew you were boyfriend, girlfriend. It was fairly obvious, at least in my eyes. So for people to allow it and just, you know, not say anything was also confusing to where, okay, maybe this is okay. Right, right. So when did you get to a place where you're like, wait a minute, this is not okay. And then I like, what brought you over that line? Um, there was a point where when I was still a kid, so moving on to about, well, sixth grade is when I really started to notice a deep pain within that just didn't make sense. So one of the things that I went through, you know, with he would bring other men in. He also started to take me to a different place where um, I remember money being exchanged. I remember um, being put in a room and different men coming in. And But I learned the art of disassociating. And I wholeheartedly believe that disassociating is a gift from God. I think my young nine-year-old mind could not process and handle what I was going through. And so that was almost my way of escaping it at that time. But it also made it to where I then couldn't verbalize to anybody what was going on. Um, I didn't have the A to Z, this is what just went on in the last hour to where I could then tell an adult what was going on. I just knew I was having nightmares. I was hurting like in my heart and I started to cut. I started to show some outward signs of I'm not okay. I started to have suicidal thoughts. Um, and, and those were picked up on by adults. And um, unfortunately, they were handled as if I was just a kid that wanted attention instead of something's going on. Um, and then fast forward to about my seventh grade year. Um, my coach, this, this teacher coach, he he would play these mind games where he would be all about me for like a month, just giving me praise, seeing me all the time, needing different things for me. And yes, it involved then being sold and being hurt, but he was all about me. But then he would go about a month or more where he wouldn't look at me, wouldn't talk to me, acted like I didn't even exist. And it was a roller coaster of mind games, but it was during one of those times when he wasn't talking to me and I was hurting so bad that I reached out to a friend and I just was like, I've been hurt. I don't, I don't necessarily have all the details. I tried to make sense of something that I remembered in my head. And I sure as heck wasn't going to tell on him because I didn't want to hurt him. But I was trying to at least explain, I've been hurt. I'm, I'm hurting. I need help. Well, she then took it to the school. She took it to teachers and the principal who contacted my parents. Um, but unfortunately, again, it came back as you're just wanting attention and this isn't true. So at no point in your youth, were you given a space to figure out what happened or, you know, no. even just allow you to give the bits and pieces you did remember. Right. Um, you know, we lived as if everything was okay and we were a preacher's family and, with that comes a lot of eyes watching you. And I know that that's a burden and for our family and just wanting to act like we have it all together is kind of how it felt. And I, I tried. And for the most part, I was able, you know, I made good grades. Um, I was athletic and good at sports and had friends. I was not your typical trafficked victim by any means. Um, 
But there were also signs, too, that pointed to something's wrong. Yeah. How long did this go on? Um, so when I graduated eighth grade, the relationship with him pretty well broke off completely at that point. Um, and then I went on that, it, which was confusing because I mean, that grooming process, I thought he loved me and how messed up that sounds, but I really did. Um, but then I went on to high school and college and got married and kids and all of that. And it wasn't until 2014. And I remember it like it was yesterday, I was scrolling through Facebook and um, I came across a post that one of my friends had posted and her daughter um, was, I think, in the fifth or sixth grade and went to the same school as my coach. And uh, she posted, my friend posted a picture of a painting her daughter had done and then in the comments below said, thank you to, and she put my coach's name for staying after school with my daughter working on this painting. And literally my whole world fell apart. Like, image after image of things with him, things that he made me do with others, places that we went, like everything just fell apart. I remember running to the bathroom and just puking. I think I puked six, seven times. Just my body was reacting. My mind was reacting to all of these flashbacks all of a sudden coming to my mind. And I remember my husband coming home from work and here he had left that morning having no idea. And now it's like, hey, this is the reality of what went on when I was a child. And Luckily, he believed me um, and we started to seek Christian counseling and different things. But that was kind of the moment where it was like, oh, my goodness, this is this is the truth. Wow. Wow. So it took that one Facebook post for a flood of memories to come back. And you you said something a minute ago. You said you're not necessarily a typical trafficked victim. What would you say is typical? Is there a typical? Well, when I say typical, I mean, I'm not the prototype, like I'm not what people imagine in their mind when they think traffic, trafficking. They picture somebody overseas. They picture maybe prostitution in Las Vegas or something like that. They don't picture within a public school system in a very, I mean, very small town in the Midwest. You know, you don't picture it in that way. But yet, as an adult and as I've gone to different safe houses and met so many survivors, majority of them are stories like mine. It's people they knew. It's with It was hidden amongst everybody else around them. It was hidden in their community. And for a lot of the survivors as well, they believed it was a relationship. So they couldn't have even said, yes, I was trafficked at that time. It wasn't until years later, they looked back and realized, holy cow, like I was trafficked. Right, right. And it doesn't, from what I've um, heard from you, it didn't feel or even other stories, it doesn't feel like um, it's a bad thing. Again, it doesn't feel like a crime. It feels Mm -hmm. like a relationship. And so when you had that first, you know, blowout of of flashbacks and that memory, um, your entire world that you thought was shattered. And now you're starting to understand, oh my gosh, this is, this is a crime. This is not Mm -hmm. right. This is, I mean, and, and, uh, the memories that you had were horrible. How did you start the healing journey? The first thing for me that I needed to do was to make sure that that little girl that I had seen the Facebook post about, that she was okay. And honestly, I think a big part of my healing has been wrapped around wanting to help others. I think stepping outside of my own self and having purpose for my pain has been a big part of my healing process. 
Um, because then one of the things with being trafficked, you lose all your self-worth. And sometimes in the process of healing, being able to, to know, well, that little girl, she has worth and I'm willing to fight for her. And along the way, I start to realize I'm worth fighting for too. So, um, definitely getting counseling. I've had several different counselors through the years that have been outstanding and amazing and they understand trauma. They understand disassociating. Um, you know, a lot of my responses as an adult were shaped and, and showed that I was still very much that nine-year-old, nine-year-old little girl back whenever the abuse started. And my mind was almost stuck there in many ways. Um, so being able to get past that barrier and gosh, I, I think I still get stuck in that at, at times. It's just part of the trauma, but recognizing it, um, creating a toolbox that I can use so many different things have been a big part of my healing. Well, and you're right. The, the grief process is, uh, you know, it's sadness and anger and denial and, um, roller coaster of everything. And you think you're doing okay. And then all of a sudden you're not in it. <laughs> yes avalanche. Um, but one of the processes or one of the steps of the grief process is using your pain for good and using your story to give back to others mm-hmm. in some way. What are some ways that you have been able to start sharing your story and impact others who either have been on this journey or maybe protect those before it even starts? I had no idea the impact my book would have. I had originally written it um, for myself, for my own healing, and kind of um, shared it with about five or six close friends. And of course, all of them were like, you need to publish this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But um, but then I was seeing a counselor and <laughs> I was actually just starting to see her. And I was like, here, read my book and then it'll help make everything make sense. Then you know, I don't have to tell you the whole story. <laughs> yes, we don't have to start from day one. And so she read it and she was like, this needs published. And I was like, okay, thanks. And she's like, no, I'm serious. And she actually paid for it to be published. She got me hooked up with the publisher because I didn't know a single thing about that. And there was probably no way I would have done it for myself anyway. I didn't think enough of myself at that point. So we published the book. Uh, it's been a little over a year ago. And, um, at first there was really nothing said. I didn't like promote it. I didn't put it on Facebook. I didn't say anything about it. I just published it. Well, then, um, about four months, I would say after that, all of a sudden somebody posted on Facebook, a picture of my book. And she said, I went to that grade school. I had that coach. And I remember this, 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 and this, like, why is people not standing up and saying something? And from that one comment, there has now been thousands of people who have reached out to me and said, I support you. I believe you, which never thought that could possibly, that was one of the biggest miracles in my life is to get that type of support. Um, Because for a long time, people believed him until they were able to read my book and be able to see how it all, how he did it all. Then they were kind of like, okay, now this makes sense. Um, And then having people come up to me and be like, me too. And, or, you know, not being able to, and some of them told their husband for the first time, this is actually what happened to me as a kid. Um, some of them told their parents for the first time. I had a situation where a woman read my book. She passed it on to a friend who then passed it on to her daughter. And then her daughter called her mom up and said, Hey mom, I need to tell you something. 
this is what happened to me as a kid. And it wasn't trafficking, but it was abuse. And they got word back to me just so I could know they're healing now because they were able to read a similar situation. Um, grooming is textbook. Like so many women have come up to me and said, I didn't know I was groomed until I read your book. And they thought they were in a relationship. And then they read my book and like, holy cow, that wasn't a relationship. And then their healing process could begin. It's each time I hear those stories, oh goodness, one time I had, I think an 80 year old woman and she, I was actually sharing my story at this point and she started bawling and she looked at me and she said, disassociation. She's like, I did that. I didn't know there was a word for it. I didn't know anybody else in the world did it. But that's what I did. She's like, this is the first time I'm meeting somebody who's been through it. And she was 80 years old. And so moments like that have just built my heart up and given me strength, given me courage to keep going. And I know it's God. I know he's speaking life back into me. And it's a miracle. Yeah, well, as as traumatic and torturous and awful your experience has been, you've been able to see God show up throughout pieces of it. And, and, you know, the how kind of showing up for you too, where you're like, oh, I have this opportunity to publish this book. I have this opportunity that just kind of presents itself to connect with these different groups and these different people that has continued to um, take you that next step of healing. Yes. How important is it to be believed? Oh my goodness. So that's a whole nother form of trauma, in my opinion. When they don't believe you, it it crushes you. It it at first you don't even think that's going to be a possibility. Like, why wouldn't they believe me? Um, but it has been what I've heard more than anything. It wasn't until um I was an adult and I had been fighting this hell for a long time and Um, I met a woman at church and she was an elder's wife. And for whatever reason, she had a something in her that felt safe. And um, I call her granny in my book. But uh, I remember I started off small and I would text her little things like, hey, would you pray for me? I have an eating disorder. And I kind of closely watched how she, she didn't. She didn't judge me. She loved me. She would give me hugs and make, you know, ask me occasionally, are you okay? She would text me some. And so then I would tell her a little bit more, hey, you know, would you pray for me with this situation? But then I remember one time I texted her and I just said, what would you have done if your daughter had come to you and said she was being hurt? And I remember her response was nothing like anything I'd ever heard. And it was of love and support and belief. And she picked up on that point that, okay, she, you know, Rachel has probably been abused at some point. And so she was supposed to be teaching a Wednesday night, a WANA class, and she got a sub and she came to my house and we went for a drive. And I remember um, her just saying, you know, this, so many women have been abused a lot of times. You know, I, I shared a little bit about my past as a child. She's like, a lot of times men will do this because of, power or whatever. And I said, yeah, or money. And I remember her jaw dropped open and she was like, what? And she had no idea. She thought trafficking happened in Cambodia. She did not know it was in her backyard. And I remember her saying to me, you have told the right person, this will not continue. And she stuck by that to this day. Um, She has believed me. She has gone with me to police stations, to courthouses, 
Um, she's gone with me to talk to the FBI, the local police, the state police. Uh, she's gone with me to counseling. She has literally stood and walked by me through all of this. And whenever I could not fight for myself, she fought for me. And one of the neatest things though about it was she didn't just fight for me to where I'm like coddled and unable to take care of myself at this point. She fought for me, but she also equipped me with reminding me, Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my comforter. He is the one that will protect me and take care of me. Like she pointed me to the truth all along the way. She also pointed me to the truth that I was worth fighting for, that I am worth believing. And um, all of those things has helped to make me to where I am today, to where I can now speak and share truth with other people. Um, But it started with her believing in me. It started with her fighting for me. Um, none of this has been easy for her by any means. Like she's, she's had to deal with her own struggles with, I mean, even just me sharing flashbacks with her is probably traumatizing for her, but she has such a strong relationship with God. Um, she has her support system and the way that God has orchestrated it has been beautiful and it's, it's been saving for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing because as someone on the outside, I, you think, why shame and guilt? It's not your fault at all. It's clearly his fault. He's not a normal person. (laughs) This is evil. And you know, that kind of thing. Um, but the way that he turns it in on you, I can imagine that's really where a lot of that comes from. And then to have somebody speak, help you to unwind that I feel like is a powerful process. Why do you think sharing your story with others is healing too? I think being able to see um, that my perp- or my pain was not just for nothing, being able to see that good come from it, um, being able to form relationships with people where, you know, we can be like, oh, yeah, I have that trauma brain, too. And, you know, I got the anxiety and all. we can kind of um, share in our pain a little bit and it helps make the walk a little bit easier, I guess. Um, but something about being able to see a life change you know, I don't believe that I was trafficked because God chose for me to be trafficked. I think I was trafficked because there's evil in this world. And I think that God then used that for his good. And I don't think he ever wanted me to go through it. I think it hurt him as much as it hurt me, if not more. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that each time I was hurt, he was being hurt too, because he was within me. Um, But I also believe that he knew good could come from this and lives could be changed and hopefully saved from having to go through the same thing. Secrets eat you up inside, you know? And when, no matter what the secret is, it's can, it impacts everything, impacts sleep. It impacts your ability to focus and concentrate because you're so kind of in your own space. And um, at my last retreat, we were kind of talking about some of hard stuff that we really don't typically have the space to talk about. Yeah. And one of the girls, we kind of decided, you know, around the campfire that we were going to make a nonprofit called Stop Sis. And Sis stands for suffering in silence. Oh, wow. And so in our dreams, this is like our brainstorming space, right? That Stop right. Sis is a place to tell your story. Because I love there's that. so much relief that happens from getting it out of your body and like mm-hmm. actually purging it. Uh, that's why, you know, a good cry is healing, you know, because you're getting it out of your system in a bit. And I yes. can imagine 
like writing your book is one level of healing and then having people read it and believe you is another level of healing, knowing that it's impacting others. And now you're getting asked to speak on podcasts like this and on stages around the country to share your story. Yeah, it's, it's been, it's vulnerable. Renee Brown, goodness, talks about vulnerability and how you want to shy away from it, especially if in the past you were vulnerable enough to tell and nobody believed you. It makes it to where you never want to tell again. So anybody listening, always believe, always believe the victim. I mean, and even if what they're saying doesn't make sense, there's something going on um, for sure. But then when they are believed, when I was believed, it's like a, a whole new world was opened up to me. Like, okay, it, yes, thank you. I, I knew this happened and now I'm being validated. Mm-hmm. So how can we protect our children? Because I can imagine your parents just thought you were going to school. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how do we, what are signs to look for? Or what are some things that we can do as parents to help guard our children in this crazy world? So one of the things that I like to say often is, um, you know, it's always good to have the good touch, bad touch talk. And that's great. And it's important. But oftentimes the abuse and such happens with somebody we know, possibly somebody we love. And so you need to also ask your children, who makes you feel special? Who likes to spend a lot of time with you, even if it's at school or, um, you know, who's somebody that makes you feel good about yourself? Because sometimes if they say a 40-year-old man at school, something's up. You know, that shouldn't, there's no reason why a 40-year-old man should want to spend time alone with a nine-year-old little girl. Um, so asking those types of questions, also, the, the child might end up saying more than they meant to. If they're trying to protect the person who's hurting them, you know, they maybe will, if you say, well, has anybody touched you here? They'd be more apt to say, no, 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 no. But if you say, well, who makes you feel special? Oh, well, let me tell you all about my coach. He makes me feel so good about myself. He thinks I'm going to the WNBA, you know, and then you kind of get a window into what's maybe really going on. That's a great question because you're right. If somebody were to say, is your coach hurting you? You would say, no, he loves me. Right. 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 Well, and I probably wouldn't have even said he loves me because I have to be careful to protect, you know, his wife. And like you would, I would, I was very smart about how I handled things with him because I, I didn't want to hurt him. Yeah. Yeah. So who makes you feel special? Is there somebody that enjoys spending time with you? Those mm-hmm. are lighthearted questions that's, that I would imagine you could ask right before bed and a child would answer like, yeah, cool. Woo. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't feel guarded by that question. Right. I think another important thing too is, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a family. As a mom, you always hope that your child will come straight to you and say, mom, this is what happened. But for whatever reason, if they think they're going to be hurting you by telling you, it could be that the perpetrator actually said that to them. Like you're, this will kill your mom if you tell her or something like that. There needs to be another person in their life or other people in their life that they feel safe to talk to as well. And I think that's something that we can build around our kids as a safety net for them. Yeah. It sounds like your coach isolated you quite a bit. Yeah. And I didn't even realize it, but yes. Yeah. I remember in youth group, I was in youth group at our church. And so we did a bunch of, you know, mission trips and service projects and every Wednesday night and that kind of thing. And there was a table at my wedding, just of youth group leaders. 
And I remember talking to somebody about how important youth group was to me, not because I had something that I needed to divulge to them, but because I had other adults in my life who cared, who I knew they were glad to see me, who, you know, were just another support system. And I can, I can imagine, especially when you're isolated like that and having caring adults with appropriate relationships who you, who are kind of speaking that worth to you. I felt more, I felt uh, uh, valuable because, you know, they all came to my wedding. They, they were a big part of my life. And I think that it's a, just another reminder to number one, involve yourself in things, but number two, know who they, know who they are and be a part of things too. Yes, there's a fine line. There. I know, right? There is. And I think that's the tricky part, especially when a lot of this stuff can be found in churches or schools yeah. using faith as a manipulator, and it can be even more confusing to the child. So as much as we want to join all the clubs, we also need to mm-hmm. know what's happening there as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. It. I mean, church is a perfect place to hide out. And and you want to believe that everybody there is, is safe and all there for good reasons. Um, but unfortunately, that's just not always the case. We People are human and evil exists. I know a lot of people have read my book and they said that it definitely opened their blind eyes. But now they're living in a fear. Like, what? I mean, I'm scared to trust anybody. And I don't think we need to have that mentality. We just need to be smart and have communication and uh, equip our children, have those conversations with them so they feel equipped when a situation arises. We don't want to live in fear. We don't want to act like everybody's bad, um, but we can do a lot to help protect ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm guessing people are going to be wondering if anything came from going to the police and going to the FBI and taking action in that way. Oh, that's a great question. Um, you would be saddened to hear that no, nothing really has come from that. Um, and I, I had a amazing FBI agent who, um, took my case and found a lot of information, um, was putting connections together and, um, long story, but everything fell apart. Um, evidence that they had found was lost. Um, she was transferred to another place. Um, and my case now sits on somebody's desk at an FBI office and is no longer being looked into. And it doesn't matter how hard I try. Um, it's just, it's not, they're not doing anything with it. And, you know, you can go into the whole, somebody's involved inside and, um, I would probably agree that there probably is. And, and that just goes even deeper with, we can't trust police there's, and I don't ever want to say that because there's so many good police out there. And um, but again, there's people in high places um, that are not good. And so um, my case has been completely dropped. It has, um, you know, I had one police officer come to me and say, I watch too many movies. Um, but we're also dealing with police officers who are not informed, who have not been trained, who don't understand that trafficking isn't just prostitution type. Um, that it can happen within schools and churches and um, the people who disassociate. And, you know, they don't know those things. They're not trauma-informed. And so it is like a foreign language to them. It's unbelievable to them. And that's kind of the roadblock that I've hit. Wow. It's uh, one of those things where you say we're surprised and not surprised at the same time. 
Yeah, unfortunately. I do think that a lot has been over the past two years has been coming out more mainstream Mm -hmm. um, with the Jeffrey Epstein case and then the Jalene Maxwell and like he she was the girl for him that was getting Mm -hmm. people ready and making every you know kind of a recruiter in a sense. Yep. And then if you look at a uh, guys, another place to go read more about this is called Operation Underground Rescue. And I don't have it pulled up, so I don't remember the guy's name, but he has been doing this work for um, quite many years. And they posted yesterday that they that charges are being um, brought against Prince Charles. And, you know, just again, you hear these high level names being tossed with these crimes and you just wonder how deep does it go? I have a friend who works in Dominican Republic and she is building a safe house there as well and talks a lot about Super Bowl Sunday as being a a day when people travel to locations to be abusive in a sense. So it's a big hot ticket day. Yeah, more more women and children and well and men too are sold on Super Bowl than most days of the years. It's it's an awful, awful situation. And I, I've heard that people are trying different things, Super Bowls trying different things to try to make this not such a problem, but it's huge and it's sad. Any reason why? Is it just because it's a worldwide like event? I mean, it just doesn't make, I mean, none of it makes sense. I don't know if we should try to make it make sense. <laughs> you cannot make sense of evil. I, no. That's one of the things I say. Yeah, um, I don't know exactly what the reason is, except, um, you know, parties and drinking and just losing your mind for a while. I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, a lot of people are hurt on that day. So we are planning a dream mission, a dream life mission trip to Dominican Republic in the next year or two to do work um, with that family, that couple. And they're building a safe house there. And what we would do is work with some of the girls in the city and then also help build. So if you are a handyman, like, can you really have like 10 girls? What are we going to do? That's helpful. <laughs> we can paint. <laughs> oh, loving on those girls will be awesome. Yes, absolutely. And then when I started talking about the mission trip, I had another friend reach out and she said that she was trafficked for three years in Germany by her boyfriend at the time. Yeah. Sucks. And it's, it just is more prevalent than one would expect, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and I'm thankful that we're starting to raise awareness that trafficking is now a word that people are starting to hear. I do think there's a lot that choose not to believe, choose not to think it's happening here. Put your blinders up and let's just keep walking forward. You know, in a grocery store, if you saw me, you would never have guessed that I was trafficked. That's that way with a lot of people. I mean, you have no idea what they're going through in their story. Um, but it's impacting a lot more than we realize. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to honor you for continuing the healing journey, for saying yes well, to the opportunities that have been let presented. Let me just say <laughs> that you have been a huge part of my healing in the last several months. And the way that you have got me to see worth in myself, even deeper than what Granny did and just pouring into me and helping me start to make some wise choices for myself. Um, you know, I was still very captive by um, coping skills and uh, the ways that I was dealing with the trauma and the flashbacks. And because it's not something that just goes away by any means. And so I was still trying to survive, but using several coping skills. And 
I don't think I am anymore. Like I think, I think I'm starting to be free even from those coping skills and I can think better. Um, and I'm, I'm just all around doing so much better. And a big part of that started with you. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. And I think that's just God, right? The how showing up for both of us. Um, and we just continue to say, yes, okay, let's do it. And, (laughs) and when we do amazing things start to truly happen. And it's been very cool to see your growth over the past few months. And we actually get to meet in real person this week. So that will be super fun. I can't wait. Um, so I've got two last questions for you. Okay. The first one is if you were, well, beside your own book, you guys, you need to go purchase (sighs) open blind eyes. Um, and the link will be in the show notes, but besides your own book, what is maybe a book that you've read or something that you felt like was a very, was, was healing on your journey or kind of a go-to that you recommend to people? I actually mention it within my book because it was so, uh, just profound for me. I had a really hard time understanding where God was in my trauma. And so there was a point where I had to um, go away to an eating disorder facility. Um, I had to basically do it for safety reasons, but also health reasons. Um, But on the, in the library of this little place was Heart Made Whole. And it was by Krista Black Gifford. And she described some of her own trauma, but then she somehow explains in a way that it finally clicked where God was in this journey and where he is and that it wasn't his fault and that it's not that I'm any users. Something in that book just clicked with me. And so I would have to say that that is one that I definitely recommend. So Heart Made Whole. And then right now I'm reading Brene Brown's book called Atlas of the Heart. And I highly recommend that. I'm I'm starting to wholeheartedly believe that especially with survivors of extreme abuse, there's a language barrier. Like I cannot form words to you to explain what happened. And therefore you can't understand what happened. And so there's no processing. There's no connection that it's tough anyway to make that connection with other people. And she talks a lot about language, about emotions and how being able to put the right emotion with what you're feeling can be freeing. It can be, um, it helps you process things quicker and better. I don't know. It's been a good read for me. Awesome. Yeah, I got it as well. And I'm, I'm through, I'm like the introduction has lines all through it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even gotten to chapter one yet. <laughs> yep. It's, it's really, really good. Have you ever reached out to the author of Heart Made Whole? No, I haven't. Um, I, I don't know much about her, but I would like to, I should do that. Yeah. I found that it's easier and easier these days to find people <laughs> I'm like, yeah. well, get her on the podcast. Let's do it. That'd <laughs> <laughs> be awesome. I'd like to say thank you to her. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So my last question is, is, um, you, um, you know, we're all in a healing journey with our own kind of stuff, aren't we? We're all going through this life, but what are some things you do every day that you couldn't live without that kind of keep you focused in the here and now and of the future you want to create? So I would say my answer would be worship, which sounds super holy. And, but let me explain. So worship for me is refocusing my eyes on God. And some days that means blasting my worship music and singing my heart out and praising him 
you know, things are good and, you know, holy is he and all of that. Some days worship is curled up in a corner in my closet, bawling my eyes out saying, God, I need you. Um, sometimes worship is literally taking like deep breaths and reminding myself, you know, he is within me. He will get me through this. Worship comes to me in all different ways and is different every single day. But each time I refocus my eyes on him, I'm able to function so much better. Um, anxiety, depression, all of the things um, seems to get less heavy. And so I can very much get caught up in the struggles of each day, um, the things that I'm going through, and I can end up spending hours in a dark place. But then as soon as I'm like, God is good and turn my eyes back to him, everything changes and I'm able to get back on track with, you know, functioning around the house, being the mom I need to be, the wife I need to be. But for me, it always, always starts with focusing my eyes back on him. I'm better at it some days than others. And again, some days it means just bawling my eyes out. Um, But worshiping him through the storms and through the good times is what has been my number one thing each day. Amen. Amen. If someone out there has their own story or is has their own, you know, maybe they've been suffering in silence um, with addiction or, you know, or with abuse. So there's a lot of different ways. Right. What would you tell to somebody who has experienced trauma in their past? Well, if there's somebody suffering in silence, I definitely want to say reach out. Um, use your gut sense of finding somebody who is safe and reach out. And if they don't believe you, reach out again to somebody else. Don't give up in that um, because there is a community out there who will believe you, who will love you, who will support you. Shoot, reach out to Denise, reach out to me um, because you're not alone in this. And then don't give up because isn't that what these perpetrators want is just to give up, call it quits. They win. Uh, uh-uh. Like we can't do that. We need to rise up as a sisterhood, as a brotherhood and say, we are going to fight back and it takes an army. Um, but I think that we're starting to see people join forces and we're going to put a stop to some of this stuff and, um, call it what it is and be bold. So, um, don't give up and speak out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Rachel, so much for sharing your story here with us today. You guys go get her book um, and, you know, reach out if you feel like you need some space to share your story, whether it's me or with her or, you know, we'll create our own little group here. That's right. (laughs) You betcha. A safe place where we can share our stories and and work to heal because, you know, there's fruit on the other side of of the valley. And, um, and that's where we can really identify purpose within that pain. And, and that's the other side of grief too. It's part of the healing journey is giving back to those who are maybe where you used to be. And and that's what you're doing. Um, and your message is spreading, um, all over the country. And so be proud of where you are now, because it's not been an easy road to get there. And there's certainly, you know, we're not done yet. Um, Yes, (laughs) but be proud of how far you already have come. So thank you again for being vulnerable and sharing your story with us today. You guys go grab her book and we'll see you guys next week. 
Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. I want to hear your aha moment from today's amazing episode. If you could leave a review at whatever podcast player you choose to listen from, Apple Podcast, CastBox, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're listening from, leave a review and share with us your favorite part of today's episode. Thanks for hanging out. And remember to dream big.